And we'll begin chanting the refuges and precepts together. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Buddham Saranangha Chami Dhammam Saranangha Chami Sagam Saranangha Chami Dutiampi Buddham Saranangha Chami Dutiampi Dhammam Saranangha Chami Dutiampi sagam saranangha chami Dutiampi satatiampi buddham saranangha chami Tatiampi dhammam saranangha chami Tatiampi sagam saranangha chami Panati pata veramni sikapadam samadhyami Adina dana veramni sikapadam samadhyami Abrahmacharya veramni sikapadam samadhyami Musawada Veramni Sikapadam Samadhyami Sura Meraya Majapamadatana Veramni Sikapadam Samadhyami Vikala Bojana Veramni Sikapadam Samadhyami Nacha Gita Vadita Visukadasana Malaganda Vilepana Dharana Mandana Vipusanatana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Uchasayana Mahasayana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Idam me silam maga palanyanasa pachayo o tu.
This evening's talk is part one of a two-part talk about mindfulness. And we'll begin uh, the evening together in a somewhat unusual way with a few moments of closing your eyes, settling into your seat, and visualizing internally, if that's an easy uh, thing for you to do, or feeling, feeling this, as though you're sitting under the Bodhi tree with Siddhartha Gautama, 2,500 years ago. towards the end of that long and now quite famous night under the bow tree. And after Mara, the personification of all the dark and potentially destructive forces in the mind, had let fly the poison arrows of greed, aversion, and delusion at Siddhartha Gautama the arrows that Mara hoped would stick and then distract Siddhartha from the clarity and strength of his great vow and courageous determination to fully awaken. Mara shot the last arrow that was left in the quiver, the arrow of doubt, the arrow of self-doubt, accompanied by these words. What makes you think you have the right to be sitting here? That you have the right to be sitting where and how you are? Just who do you think you are anyway? And the Bodhisattva, the just about to be Buddha, balanced within the deep power and cool ease of an unwavering and undistracted mind, protected within the great strength of his mindful presence, which was enlivened by a keen interest and penetrating sense of investigation that was accompanied by clear discernment. This about-to-be Buddha, supported by the tremendous energy of his determination, and flow of an effortless effort imbued with an enlivening and refreshing joy. Siddhartha Gautama sitting under the bow tree that night with unshakable stability, with an evenness and balance of receptive presence as though he were an immovable mountain. With all of these qualities, these factors of mind and heart perfectly in place, in response to Mara's challenge, the Bodhisattva, 
with his amazing grace, simply reached down and touched the earth with the fingertips of his right hand, letting Mara know that the earth was bearing witness to his right to be sitting where and how he was. And Mara was defeated, never again to have any power over the Buddha. And so we sit, maybe not always exactly like the Buddha sat on that night 2,500 years ago, but we sit, we practice, we practice with sincerity, with determination, at home and now here in retreat, with dedication and aspirations often, at least at times, clearly felt and known. And as we practice, the particular qualities of heart and mind that were all so perfectly in place within Siddhartha that night under the bow tree, as we practice, these capacities of heart and mind continue to develop, deepen, and mature within ourselves. It's inevitable, actually. It's inevitable that this happens if we keep on practicing. So this evening, we'll begin exploring the quality or factor of mind that the Buddha said was like a precious gem, mindfulness, as I already mentioned. This is part one of a two-part talk about mindfulness. Exploring mindfulness from the standpoint of it being an essential factor of awakening. With this evening's talk particularly oriented towards mindfulness of the body. And we'll look into mindfulness from two particular perspectives. That of your direct experience, your cultivation or prompting of this quality through your ongoing practice. And in this context, also recognizing the great power of protection and healing that mindfulness brings as it develops and takes root. We'll also briefly touch in through the talk, this talk and tomorrow night's talk, uh, from the perspective of its unfabricated, unprompted presence as an aspect of the mind, an aspect of the heart of non-clinging. The natural place of mindfulness in the awakened heart in the awakened mind. When the Buddha spoke about mindfulness as being like a precious gem, he tells us that it's supported by seclusion, dispassion, and renunciation. 
really the very conditions that we have here on retreat. Mindfulness along with concentration are key factors for the mind, the heart to ripen into relinquishment. Relinquishment in this case, meaning the letting go into awakening, letting go into liberation. As we explore together this evening, consider the possibility of letting the words be a touch point or a pointing out towards directly connecting with mindfulness within yourself. Which, from my experience, is facilitated by what we could call listening from the heart rather than listening from the head. So in support of this, it's helpful to really relax deeply in and through the body. So taking just a couple of moments right now, relaxing from head to toe, from toe to head, letting this body relax. dropping into the body with a bright attention, relaxed and at the same time brightly alert. Letting the whole body, heart, and mind deeply relax into simply and directly hearing. So this factor of mindfulness, you've all heard lots about mindfulness, but we can actually never hear too much about mindfulness. I often think of mindfulness as the mother, the great mother of all of the factors of enlightenment and in fact the great mother of the whole of our practice. In a sense, it's the factor that gives birth to all of the other factors that are necessary for awakening. The Buddha spoke about about mindfulness as being the chief. Different language. So maybe a kind of male-female way of speaking about it. So putting it together, we could say mindfulness is the chief mother. And when it really begins to be established in us, It's the factor that lights up all of the inner and outer phenomena that we experience, as well as offering us really the greatest protection in this life. The Pali word for mindfulness is sati. 
And sometimes sati is translated as memory or to remember. So breaking that word down, to remember, reconnect, to connect or reconnect to the present moment's experience of body and mind. And I think for many of us, at least at times, we forget to be mindful because of our strong, habituated conditioning to not remember, to not directly, freshly, purely connect to the present moment, the present moment's experience, but to remain resting in our habits, to remain resting in a kind of inertia, Years ago, in a Dhamma discussion with friends, someone asked, what makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? Really good question. What makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? It's become quite a common word these days. And it is uh, because of the, quote, mindfulness movement, which is a wonderful, really a wonderful thing that's happening. But in some ways, it's become such a common word on so many different levels in different realms that in some ways it has lost some of its potency. Some of its potency has been dissipated in certain ways. So what makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? The great intimacy of mindfulness. This moment's experience is this. Just this much. Absolutely believing our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, touch, mind, and heart. Absolutely believing our body and mind, meaning absolutely believing what comes to be known through cultivating a powerful, concentrated, direct, and immediate mindful awareness in relationship to the experiences that come through each of the six sense doors. Being receptive to what is, without the forethought of concepts, past experiences, or ideas of how we think it is, or how we think it should be, or how we think it shouldn't be, or how we think it could be, or will be. Just that direct receptivity to what is. The great Indian spiritual teacher Krishnamurti said, beginning as though you don't know anything about it, and moving from innocence to innocence. A really beautiful way of speaking about it, I think. In Zen, it's sometimes called the don't-know mind. With this great intimacy of mindfulness opening the door to understanding the truth that in fact sometimes appears so clear and so simple that we can hardly believe it. The Buddha's mindfulness asks us to not 
remain resting in our old habits, to not remain resting in a kind of inertia, but to meet the experiences of the moment with a fresh, connected intimacy, to come really close and see how it is. Mindfulness doesn't kind of float or skim along the surface of things. It connects, going right into the object. And yet at the same time, it's not a fixed or a sticky sort of connection. Mindful attention is a clear, fluid connection that lights up an object just long enough and just deep enough to know it. It's really this flavor of attention that allows for a penetrating investigation and a a clear comprehension of whatever it's connecting with. Mindfulness can be called the active aspect of awareness. It's a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment's experience. And I'll repeat that, because it's not our usual way of relating to the present moment's experience. A non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment's experience. (coughs) And at its best, a purely receptive relationship to whatever phenomena is presenting itself in the present moment. And, of course, we pay attention to a whole range of experience, including things that we usually do quite mechanically, like breathing and walking and hearing, the process of eating, picking things up, putting things down, thoughts, various states of mind. We pay attention to things that are pleasant as well as paying attention to experiences that are unpleasant. Experiences that are wonderful and easy to pay attention to as well as things that are more difficult to give our attention to. We open to all of it No parts left out. The very stuff of our lives is our path to liberation. It's not, as many of us have felt at times, I'm sure, oh, I could be really mindful if only I wasn't so restless. Or I could know I could be really mindful if I didn't feel so much anger. Or if I wasn't sick, I knew I could be, I know I could be mindful if I wasn't sick. Or I could be really, really mindful if I felt better. (laughs) Or if I wasn't so caught up in thought, I know I could be mindful. Or if I wasn't so attracted or attached to pleasure or to beauty, then I could certainly be mindful. Some, Some of these I'm sure you're very familiar with. 
this factor of mindfulness is about living in the action. Living in the action of the body, the heart, and the mind. Living in the present moment's experience. So in a sense, we forget our self. In a sense, we lose our self in what is. And so there's just what is without anything added or needing to be added, without taking anything away or needing to take anything away. With mindful awareness, we have the possibility of thinking, of not thinking, I'm doing this or I'm doing that. In fact, the moment that we think, I'm doing this, we're creating or recreating some degree of a sense of a separate self, creating a separation, a disconnection with the reality of the way of things, and living then in an idea, the idea of I, the idea of me and mine, instead of living directly in the action. At times, I've thought of mindfulness as magic. Not the magician's magic that creates an illusion and then pulls us into that illusion, that delusion. The magic of mindfulness and the great beauty of mindfulness is that it takes us out of the illusion. It takes us out of the delusion directly into reality. Without it, we're bound. We're imprisoned in the assumed appearance of things and caught again and again and again in our reactivity to these assumed, meaning not clearly seen, appearances. The result being that we really unnecessarily suffer in this believed unreality. Thai Buddhist scholar, Venerable Analayo, puts it this way in his book Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization. The element of non-reactive watchful receptivity in sati forms the foundation for Satipatthana as an ingenious middle path which neither suppresses the contents of experiences nor compulsively reacts to them. And he goes on. One of the central tasks of sati is the de-automatization of habitual reactions and perceptual evaluations. Sati thereby leads to a progressive restructuring of perceptual appraisal and culminates in an undistorted vision of reality as it is. And ongoing with him. This technique of simple recognition constitutes an ingenious way of turning obstacles to meditation into meditation objects. Practicing in this way, bare awareness of a hindrance becomes a middle path between suppression and indulgence. 
important aspects of sati are bare and equanimous receptivity combined with a broad and open state of mind. And concluding this from Venerable Analyo, as a mental quality, sati represents the deliberate cultivation and a qualitative improvement of the receptive awareness that characterizes the initial stages of the perception process. No matter who we are, where or how we live, all of us, all of us want ease and happiness. And most of us want many of our life experiences to be permanent, ongoing, or at least deeply fulfilling. Or we want life to suit our passing fancies our expectations, and our heartfelt and deepest desires. Consequently, most people spend most of their time and energy trying to make this happen, trying to satisfy these deep desires through external experiences. For instance, by getting this and that, or by getting him or her, doing this and that, going here and there. Or we try to find or we try to get ongoing contentment and fulfillment through this constantly, constantly changing world of our senses. And through the myriad and constantly changing relationships that go on throughout our life. As many of you know, certainly at least conceptually, none of this really works. The Buddha spoke about happiness that's beyond our ordinary experience of pleasure. He said that happiness arises when we're mindful. Happiness arises when we're mindful. And so we take the Buddha's words to heart and look closely, very closely, to sense, see, feel, and know our experience directly. Our meditation practice cultivates mindfulness. A focused mindfulness happens, we could say, when we really, truly, and fully bring our attention to the present moment. And we learn by practicing this over and over and over again, moment by moment by moment. Our practice is one of really deep intimacy, the deepest intimacy with our own experiences, which as practice develops, expands, and deepens, it becomes an intimacy 
a kind of profound intimacy with all beings, with all things. The direction of mindfulness is to be aware, intimately aware of it, whatever it is in the moment. See and know what is, what really truly is. How is it in the present moment, in this present moment, in this present moment, and this present moment? This is a basic foundation in all forms of Buddhist practice. How is it in experiencing the eye, ear, nose, tongue, touch? How is it in experiencing the mind? How is it really? Not what you hope it is or want it to be or imagine it to be or don't want it to be. A mindful relationship to our present moment's experience is what allows clarity and insight, really true understanding, to arise, to just simply and naturally arise, which it inevitably does. We don't do anything to make it happen. The truth is actually not very far away at all. It's right here, ever-present, immediately close and always and everywhere, right here, right now. And it's our greatest protection. There's a story that I like to tell about a student uh, who was in a mindfulness, weekly mindfulness class here in Taos some years ago that I was teaching. We'd come in... (coughs) every week with uh, sharing something about our week that was related to what we'd been talking about and practicing the week before and through that week. So this one evening she came in and she told us that morning she'd been watering her garden. She said it was as though the first time, although she'd watered her garden hundreds of times over many years, but she said it felt like it was the first time she'd ever really watered her garden because she was so mindful. And then she said as she was watering her garden and recognizing this amazing experience as though for the first time, she said her mind took a big leap and she said to all of us, how have we survived so long without being mindful? And she went on to say, terrible Things are decided and done when mindfulness isn't present. Well, that was our big lesson for that evening. It was a wonderful teaching from her. The Buddha Dharma is about transforming the mind, transforming the heart. And in fact, if we're not bringing our full attention to the present moment, if we're not mindful, we're living at a distance from experience, living at a distance from life itself, which 
then in fact just keeps the circle, the reactive cycle of conditioned habit patterns going round and round and round. It's as though we're living akin to our computers. You know, you push the button of your computer and out comes what's in there. When our buttons are pushed, out pops our conditioned patterns, our conditioned reactions, if we're not really practicing with developing and developed mindfulness. Another way of looking at this is that without mindfulness, it's as though we're living life through binoculars that are out of focus. Our perspective, our perspective, uh, our perception is blurred. We experience life through the filters of ideas, preconceptions, opinions, hopes, fears, judgments, similar past experiences. So an example, uh, an experience that probably every one of us in this room has had to some degree at some point, you meet someone new and you don't see them as they actually are. You see them maybe in relationship to your thoughts about them, how much you think you like them. Remember, they're brand new. You've never met them before. How much you think you like them, how much you think you're attracted to them, how much you think you don't like them or aren't attracted to them. Or maybe they remind you of somebody else. So you see this new person in relationship to what you think are similar qualities that you're thinking about. Or maybe you see this new person in relationship to how you hope they are, or what you want from them, or hope you can get from them, or hope you won't get from them, etc. With all of this, You're really not experiencing this person you've just met for the very first time just simply as they are. Have you ever gotten to know someone and found out that in fact they weren't at all like your imagined ideas about them? Without mindfulness, everything we perceive is like this. Everything we see, taste, hear, touch, smell, think is immediately interpreted back to us in conformity with our habitual thoughts and habit patterns. Meditation practice grounded in mindful awareness is about bringing everything into a clear, sharp focus to see things as they truly are, as though for the first time, without judgment, with a mind that's fresh, with beginner's mind. And my favorite illustration, some of you have heard this, regarding this is about one of my grandsons when he was two and a half years old and him seeing a pine cone for the very first time. His mother and I were taking a walk with him down the hill behind the house they were living in for a very kind of a brief time in Pennsylvania and he saw a pine cone on the ground 
He picked it up. He looked at it, turned it every which way possible. Put it up to his nose, smelled it all over. Turned it up, down, side, smelling, smelling. Stuck his tongue out, tasted it all over the place on it. He was really checking it out, really investigating it. No, no words, just mindfully finding out, what is this? Well, his mom and I, being a good grandmother and a good mother, we dutifully told him the name. We said, this is a pine cone. And as I remember, he looked at us a little bit quizzically, but he was a good boy, so he repeated the word, pine cone, and then went about his business of finding out what it really was. Well, that was quite a lesson that I've never forgotten. His fresh, open, beginner's mind. This is an attitude that we can learn or relearn to bring into our life as a whole. And it's really transformative. Transformative and potentially deeply healing. I just had this very funny thought I have to share with you. (laughs) Looking out my window in my room and seeing some of you (laughs) taking things up from the ground and licking them and smelling them. (laughs) Oh well. One definition of these teachings and practices is that they're the best medicine. Really the best medicine to make us well in the deepest and in the most profound way. Well as in freedom from suffering, the suffering of confusion, anguish, fear. Freedom from the ongoing wanting, that stems from ongoing dissatisfaction. Basically, freedom from suffering. And there's a quote that I think comes from one of the Buddha's disciples. I'm not sure exactly where it comes from, but I think that's where it comes from. One who is awakened, who has taken in the medicine of the teachings and practiced meditation and healed the sickness, is one who is freed from suffering. There are four domains of mindfulness, four ways of setting up or establishing mindfulness in the here and now. So this evening we'll spend a little bit of time exploring this first domain, the first domain, which is paying attention to the body in the body. Just the body as such. Not one's ideas about it, not one's interpretations of it, but the body in the body, as it is. And of course there are many and varied and specific aspects of the body to notice and to give a careful attention to. As all of us here are aware of, one of our primary practice orientations to the body is mindfulness of breathing. Breath as an object of mindful attention is not just a beginner's instruction. 
not just a beginner's way of practicing. The development of the mind and the understanding that's accessible through mindfulness of breath is potentially profound. In making the sensations, the simple sensations of the in and out breath in the area of the nostrils, making the sensations of the rising and falling movement of the breath in the belly, making these a basic ground of a concentrated and mindful attention. I myself have at times been deeply grateful and actually even awed at the depth and the breadth of the purification of the heart and of the mind and what comes to be seen and understood with a simple and careful attention to the direct experience of breath. So now for just a couple of moments, if you don't already have your eyes closed, close your eyes. And let the attention drop into the breath. Mindfully absorb into the in and out sensations of the breath at the nostrils or the rising and falling movement of the breath in the abdominal area. Mindfully absorbing into this without any self or with as little self as possible. And now just very simply notice, are you trying to control, trying to manipulate the breath? And noticing this without judgment, without any self-recrimination, just noticing. In a moment of seeing clearly, there's often a sense of relief. A friend of mine says, seeing is relieving. We might at times particularly notice each breath, each inhalation, exhalation, very directly as the sensations in the nostril area of the in-breath and out-breath, of the movement sensations in the belly rising and falling. Maybe noticing it right when it begins and staying with it all the way through to its end. And maybe actually noticing the ending the cessation of the in-breath, and then noticing the beginning of the out-breath in the nostril area or the falling movement in the belly. Or we may notice the in and out or rising and falling itself in a very simple way, 
basically just this, which tends to cultivate an increasingly quiet, tranquil, and peaceful breath, as well as an overall body-mind calm and tranquility. So mindfulness of breathing as an aspect of practicing mindful awareness of the body in the body. Mindfulness of the four postures. Not our ordinary, everyday kind of casual way of noticing our bodily activity, but a closer, more intimate, more ongoing and careful attention to the body in every position. Standing, sitting, lying down, walking, and the various movements of the body and getting up and going down, flexing, extending the arms and the legs, turning, lifting, putting things down, even bringing mindfulness of the body in the body to the experiences of falling asleep and waking up from sleep. Who's moving? Who's lying down? Is there a someone, a me, an I, behind this walking, this standing, this sitting, this movement? Beginning to see the postures and the movement of the body just as it is in itself. Can standing be simply known as just standing? Sitting is just simply sitting. Walking is just simply walking without the layer of I am or the internal feeling of this is me walking, this is me sitting. Once, uh, many years ago, Saida Upandita, one of my Burmese teachers, asked me a question in a practice interview. He said, is there a woman or a man or a person when you're mindful of and noting walking, standing, sitting, or any bodily sensations. Well, for just a brief moment, I was pretty caught by the question, which in retrospect, I think, uh, was a kind of test of my practice at the time. But very quickly in the interview, there was a spontaneous reflection and a response of no, there's no woman or man or anybody known when I'm really directly connected with and mindful of walking or whatever physical phenomena is happening. So a good question you might ask yourself at some point or some points along the way of your practice. And maybe through this great intimacy of mindful awareness of the body and the body, and as you begin to slow down, 
which you are all starting to do now, you may begin to notice the ongoing flow of conditions that every single moment of experience arises out of. So for instance, awareness of intention to, intention to whatever, followed by an action or inaction. In the intimacy of mindfulness, we might begin to notice where the energy of intention, or volition as it's often called, where it begins in the body, where it starts from and how it feels in our body. I don't in some independent, mysteriously isolated way stand or not stand or sit or lift an arm or take a step. As we pay a more intimate, mindful attention to the subtleties in the actions of the body and experience the interrelatedness within the body and the body-mind relationship, we may begin to see and to understand the role of intention, the role of volition. Come to, an, uh, come to experience and to know it's arising and not take it personally, or at least not take it so personally all the time. As this aspect of the body in the body blossoms, there's a very natural, non-conceptual, intuitive understanding of the subtler causes of suffering that begins to take hold, which we can open our heart to, which then can open our heart to an unimaginable expanse in relationship to all beings. How identified are you? How strong is the clinging to this constantly changing and totally interrelated phenomena we call our body? Roy, a man named Roy, who was a very deeply dedicated practitioner right up to and through his dying moment, He died of AIDS-related complications. And I was sitting with him in the hospital one afternoon as he was lying in bed, and actually pretty close to death at that point. There wasn't much left of his body at that point. And he was laying in bed, and he stretched up his arm straight up over overhead. And he turned it slowly one way and then turned it the other way, really looking very, very carefully at it with tremendous interest. And then he said in a very cool and yet odd way, he said, wow. That's all he said. The form, the posture, and the movements 
of the body are totally dependent or interdependent on conditions. They arise dependent on conditions, just as, for instance, does the afternoon wind or the early morning sunrise or the arising of anger or the sensation of coolness on the skin or the liking or disliking of some experience or Roy's body being as thin and as light as a reed. Everything happens because of a whole set of conditions coming together moment by moment. Choices are made, but in truth they too are always a product of the play of various conditions. Can we give such a clear, unfettered and intimate attention to the body, its movements, and the process of intention that we begin to directly experience this truth? The next uh, establishment or domain of mindfulness of the body as a body that the Buddha suggests, actually it's not really a casual suggestion at all, but a direction from the Buddha, is giving attention to the parts of the body. And classically, all 32 parts in the classical teachings. Hair, skin, muscles, bones, and all the various internal organs and fluids. And in your practice here, I'm sure you have noticed various parts of the body as they make themselves known, such as the intestines, the bladder, the heart, the lungs, maybe the liver, mucus, saliva, etc. But how often have you noticed them in a mindful way? This retreat really offers you the opportunity to bring a concentrated mindfulness but unattached attention directly to the various parts of the body. How identified are you with the hair on your head? Or the lack of it? Or the hair on your body, for instance? How do you attend to the experiences of your intestine and the digestive processes therein, or to a moment or many moments experience of the heart? How do you experience your skin, this bag of flesh that holds all the various contents of the body? How often do you experience your nails, teeth, saliva, mucus, sweat, or any part of your body or bodily experience with what I like to call the extraordinary qualities of mindful awareness. A non-judgmental, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting, non-self-identified kind of attention. Just the body in the body. Without 
the layers of ideas and interpretations and concerns about it. Just the body as a body. This can really be a very powerful practice in beginning to dissolve one's conceptual ideas of solidity and identification with one's own body and in relationship to other bodies. And some words from the Buddha. Abiding, contemplating the body as a body, internally, externally, he or she abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This is how a yogi abides, contemplating the body as a body. So just consider for a moment, how do you identify yourself? For most of us, if not all of us, a primary and large part of our personal identification is related to our body. We identify ourselves in good part through rupa, the Pali word that translates as material form or materiality. So considering this for a moment in relationship to yourself. I'm a woman or I'm a man. I'm thin or fat or not too thin or not too fat. I'm tall or short or of average height. I'm good looking, handsome, beautiful, ugly, plain, attractive, unattractive. I have dark skin, light skin good skin, bad skin. My nose is large, too big, small, cute. (laughs) I'm wrinkled and old and weak, or I'm young and strong and smooth-skinned. And on and on and on it goes. With all of these personal identities constantly constantly changing over the years, months, within just a few days, or within just moments in our mind. Even though we engage tremendous effort and tremendous energy and time in clinging to these various identities. There's really no place to hang our identity hat for more than a few moments, if that. No place to rest in these constantly changing relative perceptions and ideas of who we think we are. In relationship to this, one aspect of mindfulness that can be established in the body is related to the fact that our bodies are essentially no different than any other form, any other rupa. Our human form is of the same elements as any other and every other form. Nothing more, nothing less. Bringing concentration and mindfulness to the practice of discerning these elemental characteristics of the body is potentially kind of non-ordinary and powerful way to begin to cut through the concept 
of the body being a solid and static entity and to help cut through the I am identification. The Buddha offered quite a profound teaching and very specific practice in conjunction with this teaching that if we seriously and sincerely take it up, it can be a window opening us to the direct experience, discernment, and understanding of one aspect of ultimate reality. The ultimate reality of rupa, form. One aspect of reality of how it really is. One aspect of how or what this body and every other form as well really is. The teaching and practice is about discerning the four great essentials or the four great elements earth, water, fire, and air or wind in directly experiencing the specific characteristics of each of these elements in the body. And this evening I'm just going to name the characteristics related to each of the elements. I will be offering a a guided set uh, very soon specifically addressing uh, these elemental characteristics. But this evening I'll just name them. So with the earth element, the characteristics are, and you'll recognize some of these as experiential for you as I name them, the characteristics of the earth element. Hardness, roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, lightness. The characteristics of the water element, flowing, cohesion. Characteristics of the fire element, heat or warmth, and cold or coldness, coolness. And the characteristics of the wind element or the air element, supporting, pushing. How intimately, how mindfully connected are you to these most basic and universal experiences? This body in its elemental nature. Essentially no different than any other form. The last instruction from the Buddha in relation to this first establishment of mindfulness is the contemplation of the stages of decay in a corpse maybe seemingly uh, not something we have much of an opportunity to do in a retreat setting such as this. But the truth of the matter is that there are many kinds of corpses around to observe in a place like this. The possibility of insects. Maybe outside birds. Maybe other creatures. And certainly the corpses of plants and trees and flowers. All forms of life are mortal. All forms, all rupas are mortal. They have the nature to die and to decompose, or just to deconstruct and decompose. Consequently, it is possible to observe this directly. I've been in retreat in various places over the years and at times quite purposefully observed the dying process of flowers and grasses 
and continued over time to observe them go through all of the changes that things do as and after they die. And once, uh, when I was on retreat with a few friends on Cape Cod in Massachusetts where we'd rented a house uh, together on the shore of the ocean for a couple of months to practice together, I had the great good fortune, and maybe this is only good fortune in the world of Dhamma practice, but I had the great good fortune to come upon a dead seal on the beach. So every day for a month, I walked down to that body and I sat with it for a little while, observing and really letting in the process of decomposition and decay, which in this particular instance was happening quite quickly because it was being helped along by the many seagulls who found the seal's decaying flesh to be really delicious food. This daily practice during that month-long retreat was a heart-mind-changing experience for me on many levels. Ajahn Sumedho, the retired abbot of Amaravati Monastery in England and uh, the most senior Western monk in the Thai forest tradition of Ajahn Chah, tells about a time... uh, when he was living in the monastery in Thailand and asked that he be able to spend part of a day practicing in the city morgue. And because he was a monk, the authorities let him go in, although he said they were pretty reluctant, but they did let him go in. And he said that all of his sense doors, which included his conditioned mind, were fully challenged. Actually, he said, fully assaulted is the word he used. He said the first thing that hit him was the smell, which he said almost drove him to run right out the door. But he just stayed mindfully present, and he said little by little it became tolerable, and it became just a smell, just a scent. He talked about his long-standing and deeply embedded assumptions regarding this package of the human form being completely (coughs) undone in his mind and heart as he took in all the various stages of decay that were all around him there. And he mentions that at one point he looked up on the ceiling and he saw all sorts of parts, as he put it, which he said at first he found quite puzzling. And then he said he quickly realized that the very bloated body that was right in front of him could explode at any moment and he dearly wished that that would not happen while he was there he said it didn't he was glad about that he said that when he went back out onto the street he saw people in a radically new way and with a radically wide open heart It isn't about being morbid or strange in some way. All forms, all rupas, living and non-living, are mortal. And we're so attached to forms. Probably first and foremost our own form and also all sorts of other forms. For many of us our attachment 
is so strong that most of the time we live with an almost constant and often unrecognized desire for and attachment to, for instance, forms that please us, forms that are beautiful to us, or forms that are amusing or interesting to us, or simply in relationship to familiar forms. And what I think is actually kind of strange and amazing in a certain way is that fairly often we think and act as if we and they won't change, won't die. Which, if we begin to see this habitual way of thinking and acting really closely, we find that it produces an almost constant state of subtle and not so subtle tension and stress in our heart and mind and body. The Buddha's instruction to attend to corpses of whatever form can really be helpful towards cutting through this state of tension and stress, cutting through clinging, cutting through suffering. How do you know the body? How are you established in this first domain, this first foundation of mindfulness? Mindfulness practice trains us to drop into the body again and again. What we find when we connect and look carefully in the body are sensations. Much of the drama of our thought, feelings and actions begin with sensations. Through mindfulness we train ourselves to be in the body to receive them. To be present with the sensations of our body, it's not an act of will. It's an act of unconditional acceptance. One aspect of metta. With grace and with some degree of equanimity. This acceptance implies not fighting or resisting what's presenting itself. Not wanting things to be different and not concealing or hiding from the moment's experiences in the body. In such moments, we feel and we intuitively know our activity as belonging to life. Some very simple, ordinary examples that relate, for instance, to our life here in retreat, and of course also outside of a formal retreat setting. We might wash the dishes as an act of generosity and love. So in that sense, as a holy act. We open the door, clearly sensing and knowing what the wrist is doing. We feel our body contract, maybe turning away from the cold or from very hot weather. And we catch ourselves and consciously, with mindful awareness, rise up to meet it. The choice to be mindfully aware is often an act of courage, some degree of courage. The essential act is to return to whatever presents itself in our experience from moment to moment. To feel and know the actual physical sensations of our aliveness, 
in relationship to the various movement practices that some of you might be doing during this retreat. Maybe some stretching, maybe some yoga, qigong, and with walking practice, and ordinary everyday movements. Movement invites attention. It asks us to practice a kind of devotion to ourselves. Not in a self-centered way, but as an act of respect and loyalty. Instead of abandoning ourselves, we can learn to inhabit this body in a wholesome and wise way. Someone once said, and it may have been the famous dancer and choreographer Martha Graham, the body is tremendously homesick for us and it waits patiently for our return. Though we may have ignored its invitations for many years, when we do say yes, it's immediately available, full of life and know-how. And all of a sudden we find that we need no training to be really fully alive, that we only lack the determination to feel our aliveness. The body is really an excellent meditation subject. It will always tell the truth. If, for instance, you break a leg, the body is not going to give off pleasant feeling. And it doesn't have the capability to get lost in the past or to project into the future. And it's the meditation object that most easily bridges the gap between formal and informal aspects of our meditation practice. Mindful presence in the body can often be a safe haven, for instance, when thoughts or emotions are raging and maybe just feeling too overpowering to be with. The body can be a safe haven. And we're living in a time when the very rapid development of technology and the pace of our culture are making it more and more difficult to stay connected to our bodies. Consequently, cultivating the intention to practice with this first domain of mindfulness becomes more and more important. Mindfulness practice is like a treasure hunt. Within the framework of our practice, we each find the way. And because each of us has experienced specific conditions, conditioning, I should say, specific conditioning along the way of our lives, many aspects of the path and its fruits uniquely emerge in relationship to the conditioning for each of us. The treasures, the fruits that we discover along the way are healing, beautiful, and simple universal truths of the way of things. This is what sets us free. 
and from the Buddha. There is one thing that when cultivated and regularly practiced leads to spiritual, deep spiritual intention, to peace, to mindfulness and clear comprehension, to vision and knowledge, to a happy life here and now, and to the culmination of wisdom and awakening. And what is that one thing? It's mindfulness centered on the body. So in closing uh, the talk this evening, I'd like to read a wonderful and inspiring instruction from the Buddha that we can offer ourselves any time. This is from the Majjhima and it's called A Single Excellent Night. Let me not revive the past or on the future build my hopes. For the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let me see each presently arisen state. Let me know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today, the effort must be made. Tomorrow, death may come. Who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently relentlessly by day, by night. It is in her, it is in him, the peaceful sage has said, who has had a single excellent night. So let's sit quietly for just a moment. And thank you for listening to the Dhamma. And we'll close our evening together <coughs> chanting the sharing of blessings. I'm going to turn this off. Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration through the goodness that arises from my practice. 
May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, may the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent, or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing. May all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble guide. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. And may you each have a single excellent night, maybe tonight.